the coronavirus tests Europe's open borders, but Justin Trudeau isn't too worried about it. Canadian asylum seekers are given 20-year golden plate healthcare cards, and Aaron O'Toole gets a huge endorsement in the Conservative leadership race. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. We were offline last week, so sorry for not having a program, but we are back now, back in our studio in Toronto. You know, I went to a great event on Friday night. It was the Make-A-Wish Foundation dinner in the Bay Area in San Francisco. I know they have chapters all over Canada as well. It's just a really, really good cause. Basically, what they do is children that have terminal illnesses, children that are diagnosed with cancer, which is really just the saddest thing imaginable, really, really trying situations. They go to those children in the hospital and they offer them a wish, any wish to kind of give them hope, to give the family something to look forward to. And they fulfill those wishes, anything from being able to meet their favorite athlete or celebrity or singer uh, to going on a great family trip. Uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation has fulfilled over 500,000 wishes in its 40-year history. It's a really, really good cause. So I really encourage all of True North Nation to look into it, to get involved, and to do what you can to support it. I, I went to this event, and let me just say, it's it's really heart heartwarming, really moving to see the kind of stories that come out of this organization. It's a really good cause. So encourage people to look into that. All right, there is a lot of news today, so let's get to it. I want to start by talking about the coronavirus. So this thing is really taking on a life of its own. I know people who watch the podcast, when the news first came out, I was a little bit skeptical of it. First of all, it was based in China. That was the origin of this disease. I don't trust anything that the Chinese government did. I think that they made major missteps with hiding information, with lying to the world about how they were dealing with this disease. And it's kind of interesting now because now it's spread all over the world. It's really, really threatening a lot of people. It's scary, especially, you know, there's a target group that uh, is at risk, and that is people who are over 65 and people with underlying health issues. Everyone knows someone who, who fits that category. Myself, you know, I'm worried about my parents um, traveling and being out in the community. My parents live in the North Shore in Vancouver, and there's been plenty of cases there. So, you know, they can't really go about their daily lives. They can't do the things uh, that they were usually doing uh, just out of an abundance of precaution. And so, you know, it really has spread all over the world. And it's interesting because now, so many agencies are praising China and saying, you know, the world needs to do more of what China did. China is an authoritarian uh, bad actor on the world stage, and, and they're really the reason why this thing uh, spreads so out of control because of all that misinformation right at the beginning. But let's go through some of these uh, figures. So there have now been 111,753 cases globally of the coronavirus. There have been 3,888 deaths. And out of all the people who have who have uh, contracted this disease, uh, 62,722 have recovered. So I guess the good news is that some people have recovered and people are able to fight this, that their immune systems are able to fight off coronavirus. So it's not, you know, totally deadly. Um, but still, if you're in that risk group, it's, it's pretty scary. And again, China just took absolute authoritarian measures. It's pretty easy for a communist dictatorship to just completely shut down uh, mobility, to shut down any kind of freedom of travel w- within the Wuhan territory, which, you know, Wuhan's a big city. It's a city of 11 million people. That's the size of New York City. Um, and they just completely shut down any kind of movement, any kind of travel. And, you know, if you're the communist Chinese government, you can do that. Uh, the problem is, you know, in, in free societies and democracies, uh, we can't really do that. And especially so many of the democracies that are now struggling with coronavirus 
uh, are countries that have always kind of prided themselves on their open border outlook. And that's particularly in Europe. You know, the European Union, the whole concept is free movement of people, free movement of goods. Uh, but of course, when you come to a global pandemic like this, it really, really tests that that philosophy and that ideology to have freedom of movement. And they're struggling with this right now in Italy because, you know, it, Italy has a huge outbreak in northern Italy. This is sort of the most productive part of the Italian, uh, of, of, the, of the country, sort of the, the, the engine of the Italian economy. And some 17 million people are under quarantine. And, you know, they're supposed to be taking after China. But of course, Italy is no China. So this is a this is from a Quartz article. It says up to 16 million people have been placed under quarantine in northern Italy in a bid by the government to stop the march of coronavirus across Europe's hardest hitting region. Italy has seen the largest number of coronavirus cases in Europe and reported a steep rise in infections on Saturday. According to Johns Hopkins, the number of confirmed cases jumped by more than 1,200 to 5,883 on Saturday with 233 deaths. The World Health Organization has applauded China's strict containment measures in a country where state control is paramount and monitoring citizens is already integral part of life. Scrupulous quarantine and testing measures have slowed the spread of the virus. That's in China. This article goes on. It says, but Italy is no China. Italians are better known for flouting rules than following them. Some citizens say it will never work in Italy, says a 26-year-old local resident of the ban to the New York Times last night. People will run away. They'll go around it. And that's basically what has happened. They, they issued a strict warning. Um, but people continue to go about their daily life. They continue to get on trains, to travel, to drive, to, to go about their daily lives because it's really hard to just tell people in a free society, hey, you can't go out, you can't go grocery shopping, you can't run your business, you can't you know, travel to get to work or go see your family. I mean, democracies just don't really work that way. And again, Europe, the whole concept is based on this kind of free flow, free movement. So that's pretty concerning. You know, it's it's in Italy, but it's not going to stay in Italy. And as soon as it, you know, goes beyond and, and stretches throughout Europe, then it's really, really going to spread around the world. I mean, it kind of already has. There's plenty of cases already in Canada and the United States. So the total cases in Canada right now are 62. That includes 31 cases in Ontario, 27 in British Columbia, three in Quebec, and one in Alberta. And the Canadian government, they're kind of just shrugging their shoulders about it. I'm just really floored by the response by the Canadian government. I know I know, Justin Trudeau just doesn't really care about Canada. He just, he just seems so checked out. Whenever there's an issue, whenever there's a major crisis, something that I would consider a huge crisis, whether it's illegal border crossings, the, the total surge, we've never seen this many people crossing into Canada illegally. 2019 was the biggest year. The media doesn't really talk about it. Trudeau doesn't really care. You had the blockades totally grinding the Canadian economy to the halt. Trudeau's response was, hey, guys, we need dialogue. Uh, no, you don't need dialogue. Look, maybe you have a dialogue when the decision for, for the pipeline is still being made. But once the decision is made, the dialogue is over. The decision's been made. And then people go and break the law by blocking railways. That's not a time for dialogue. That's a time to arrest people. That's a time for, for the police to move in, for the military to move in. Justin Trudeau just doesn't really care. And this is kind of more of the same when it comes to Trudeau kind of having a blasé approach. So this is what Justin Trudeau says. We know that keeping Canadians safe needs to be done in the right way. And we're going to keep doing things that actively keep Canadians safe. There is a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of knee-jerk reaction that isn't keeping people safe. That is having a real 
challenging impact on communities on community safety, said Justin Trudeau. So again, Justin Trudeau is more concerned about misinformation and stopping a knee-jerk reaction than actually keeping Canadians safe. He appointed Christia Freeland to sort of be the head person to take the lead on this issue because, again, Justin Trudeau doesn't really care about Canada, so he just kind of offloads all of the real, like, prime minister stuff, all the responsibility, onto Christia Freeland, who at this point essentially is the, is the prime minister of Canada. You know, it's kind of interesting because in the United States, just to compare the two situations, Donald Trump appointed his VP, Mike Pence, to be the head person, the sort of czar on the coronavirus to lead the task force, and the media made a huge deal about it. They were kind of saying, hey, look, Trump's putting this on Pence. He wants Pence to take the fall. This is clearly going to go sideways. This pandemic is going to hit the United States. Trump's going to blame it all on Pence. And they kind of made a big deal about how this was a way for Trump to kind of get rid of Pence so he could put someone else on the ticket in 2020. That's total nonsense. Trump even addressed it to say that's total nonsense. But for all the hay that was made in the United States, Justin Trudeau did the exact same thing. He literally just appointed to his number two, the deputy prime minister. And the narrative by the media was totally different. It was like, wow, Justin Trudeau just trusts Christia Freeland so much. He puts so much trust in her. She's so respected. Uh, nothing about how, you know, she's going to be the fall person on this. So Christia Freeland takes the lead and they, the government created a COVID-19 committee. COVID-19 is what the, is the technical name for the coronavirus. So the fact that the government created a committee to just to deal with this as a task force to react and to deal with this signals that they care about it, right? The kind of entire exercise is a PR response. Like, hey, look, the government's doing something. They're creating a task force. Rest assured, Canadians, you know, the government is doing something. But then as the head of this COVID-19 committee, Christia Freeland comes out and she tells reporters that the government wants to take a Goldilocks approach. She says, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. Okay, the entire point of creating a committee is to signal to Canadians that you're doing something, that you are taking the right approach, that you're taking it seriously, and that you're going to do what you can to help prevent or at least contain the spread of this virus. So coming out and saying, you know what, we don't want to overreact, we don't want to underreact, we're just going to find the just right route. That, that, this is total wrong message to send to Canadians. That even, even if that's sort of the approach that you're going to take kind of behind closed doors, the thing you want to come out and tell Canadians is, look, we are doing everything we can. We know this is serious. We know that a lot of people are going to lose their lives if this is not if this is not dealt with properly. Look at China. Even though China took very authoritarian measures, apparently China did all the right things, but yet still globally we have nearly 4,000 deaths. So, you know, in, instead of saying we want to prevent death, we're going to do everything we can to prevent loss of life in Canada. This is the top priority of our government. That's what Canadians want to hear, that the government is really, really taking it seriously. Canadians don't want to hear from the head of a task force created to basically ease fears around this issue that, you know, we don't want to overreact. You know, the, the main concern is that we don't want knee-jerk reactions. We don't want misinformation out there. No, I think that the message coming from the Canadian government should be, look, we're going to do everything we can. We want everyone out there to be cautious, to, to, to do what they can to stop the spread of this disease. You know, if you're traveling internationally, be careful. When you come home, make sure that you're not interacting with too many people. When you're out on the plane, make sure you're not interacting. Like, you know, give strict, strict message to Canadians, strict guidelines about what you should and shouldn't do. Instead, we have the Canadian government just saying, you know, uh, we're not really going to do much. And the health minister kind of goes even beyond that. The health minister, Patty Hadju, was on 680 News in Toronto. And she tells them that the more countries that have outbreaks, 
the less relevant borders become. A virus knows no borders. So fine, that's true on the surface, but you know, countries are the ones that are responsible for reacting. And as the person, the health minister in Canada, you don't want them again to just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, borders don't really matter, so we can't really stop and contain this. No, borders do matter, especially in a country like Canada that has this sort of natural advantage in that we're separated from the rest of the world by vast oceans. All we really have to do is control our airport and our land border, which is fairly easy compared to, say, what's happening in Italy or, or how the virus spread, say, from China to Iran because the two countries do so much business together. All Canada has to do is secure their airports, but, but we don't. We, we don't have any restrictions on, on flying. We have people coming in from China, people coming in from Iran on a daily basis with no quarantine measures. I, I flew over the weekend. I flew from California to Toronto on Saturday. I saw nothing at the Toronto airport. Pearson Airport had no kind of, you know, health, there were no health officials there going through customs, going through security. Uh, you know, there was, there was just, there was nothing. There, there was no one there even, you know, checking to see if people were coughing and sneezing in that border lineup. So Canada is literally just doing nothing, telling people to kind of handle it on their own. And we have our own health minister sort of shrugging and saying, well, there's no borders. There's no borders when, uh, you know, borders are irrelevant when there's outbreaks like this. That, that, that is a defeatist attitude. And again, not what you expect. So once again, the Trudeau government is just totally failing when it comes to keeping Canadians safe and uh, taking the lead. And meanwhile, this is what the WHO says. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has urged governments to take decisive action to halt the spread of an epidemic that has infected more than 100,000 people around the world, citing China's containment measures. So again, even global authorities, global bodies are saying every, everyone around the world should be a little bit more authoritarian. Um, meanwhile, Canada is just sort of shrugging its shoulders. Iran, as I mentioned, is another country that's been really hard hit by this. And I, I think this just goes to exemplify what a crappy country Iran is, what a really, really lousy place it is. It is an Islamist dictatorship. There is absolutely no freedom in this country. It is just a horrible place to live. So an investigative journalist that I, I follow on Twitter, he's really, really good. His name is Heshmat Alavi. He has a thread on how Iran is just totally botching the reaction to the coronavirus. And it's just this, you know, this is sort of like what the reality is of living in a tyrannical state, living in an Islamic dictatorship like Iran, the kinds of things that they do. They just, they're just so clueless and so evil, um, so vicious in, in how they respond to this. So one of the things that they were doing, basically they're kind of profiting off of the coronavirus. They're trying to profit while also trying to downplay it and sort of getting help. You know, the World Health Organization is, is again, kind of applauding Iran. They said that they were doing positive work and that they've made amazing advance, advances in dealing with coronavirus. Meanwhile, a, a member of Iran's National Influenza Committee said that they're estimating that 30 to 40 percent of Tehran's population will be affected by COVID-19 by March 20th. So that's within two weeks. 30 to 40% of a city with a population of 12 million people. So we're, we're really talking about a major outbreak. That's not now, that's just what the estimates are. There's all kinds of footage of just how horribly the government has been handling 
um, even just dealing with with bodies of people who have passed away, sort of throwing them into mass graves, which is just a terrible way uh, to, 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 to deal with a, you know, a, a body, but also very dangerous when you're talking about people who have perished because of this disease. Um, they also were showing how the government was selling um, supposedly antibacterial sprays um, that they were selling in stores. It turns out that they were basically air fresheners. They were just air fresheners with a label that the government had put over top of it to say antibacterial sprays. You could kind of just peel it off and realize that it was nothing but an air freshener. Um, so again, this is the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is their military, <laughs> basically profiting off of selling people air fresheners instead of antibacterial sprays. So this is just a reminder of, you know, the worst possible reaction, an incompetent totalitarian government um, showing you, you know, what, what you don't want to do uh, with corona. And again, the reason that so many people in Iran are being affected by this disease is because Iran, basically no Western country will do business with Iran. Iran is a terrorist state. So the only country that will do business with them is China. So the early measures when a lot of countries were stopping flights from China, um, Iran wasn't doing that. So even members of their government, high-ranking officials in the Iranian regime uh, fell victim to coronavirus and them, them, themselves, a deputy health minister uh, contracted the disease. So it's really just uh, running rampant over there pretty scary stuff for people who live in Iran. All right, and speaking of open borders and the total uh, lack of control over borders, there was an exclusive in the Toronto Sun, I broke the story. It is about how illegal border crossers and asylum claimants whose cases have not even been heard in front of an immigration judge are being uh, granted 20-year health cards, 20-year all-access cards to gold-plated healthcare services above and beyond what Canadians receive. So this is including anything under the Canada Health Act, any healthcare services, as well as full dental coverage, which Canadians either pay for through their employer and insurance or right out of pocket, and prescription drugs. They get free, unlimited prescription drugs. Um, this is all part of a program called the Interim Federal Healthcare Program. Uh, but what is new is that we didn't know that the government was issuing 20-year cards. I mean, the whole point of being a, a refugee is that you come you become a refugee, you maybe get the interim federal health program while you're waiting for, you know, your papers to come in, your paperwork, all that kind of stuff until you can become a permanent resident and then a citizen. And then once you're a citizen, you're no longer a refugee. You're now just a Canadian. So why on earth is the government issuing a 20-year card? So a whistle, I talked to a whistleblower who works at a medical office in York Region. This person's a medical assistant, and they spoke to me on the condition of anonymity but they did provide a lot of supporting documentation to back up the claims. And basically what I saw was certificates issued by the government that said 20 years. So they were issued in February 2020 and they expire in February 2040. And so this whistleblower was basically just really concerned because they'd never seen this before and they didn't really understand why a person who has crossed into Canada illegally, someone who's not even deemed a refugee yet, they, they haven't even had their case heard, why they are being given healthcare coverage above and beyond what Canadians receive, not just Canadians, better healthcare than veterans, better healthcare than people in indigenous communities, better healthcare than the elderly, than homeless people, than single mothers, better than, than anybody. 
why are they given this? Um, one of the examples of the documents that I saw was issued to an Iranian woman who was in her 70s, and she had just arrived in Canada, just made her refugee claim, and again, she was given a 20-year certificate. So presumably, for the rest of her life, she's going to be able to receive that gold-plated health care in Canada that Canadians are not entitled to. So on the, on the certificate, on the document, it says the above-named individual is eligible for coverage of health care costs under the Interim Federal Health Program. This coverage can be cancelled without notice if the individual's immigration status changes. So according to the form, it kind of says, well, this is what they get until the status changes and then this gets taken away. But in practice, we know the Interim Federal Health Program has become a political punching bag in Canadian politics over the last few years. Uh, the previous Harper Conservative government, so before Trudeau was Harper, um, and he made changes to the Interim Federal Health Program. He basically tried to limit it so that people whose asylum claims were rejected or people who arrived and made asylum claims in Canada but were from like safe European countries or just safe countries, the United States, Western Europe, they didn't get access to this. So this was only reserved for true refugees. Well, the media and the Trudeau Liberals spun that to make it say that, that the Harper government was trying to cut health care for refugees, even though the people they were cutting were explicitly not refugees. A federal court uh, ruled in favor of that sort of left-wing perspective, the liberal point of view, and a federal judge said that it was cruel and unusual, that's a quote, cruel and unusual um, for the government to withhold this free health care to illegal immigrants. So they scrapped the program, and then when the Trudeau liberals came in, they made all kinds of changes to the refugee determination program to make it a lot more generous, a lot more easy, a lot easier for refugees to come and make claims and get the free health care. So, you know, even though the form says that this the interim federal health program can be taken away if um, the person's immigration status changes, we know that in practice the Trudeau government will not take it away because they accused the Trudeau, they accused the Harper government of, of being cruel for taking this away. So, Basically, what, what's supposed to be a temporary program, what's supposed to be a limited program, is the opposite. <laughs> 20 years is not temporary, and the whole idea that it's limited is not true because it literally includes all the kind of healthcare, including things that Canadians are not eligible. So I think it's a big story. I reached out to the government and basically asked, like, what's going on? Is this new? When did this come about? And I received several responses from them saying, look, we're working on this. We're going to get you an answer. We're going to figure something out. And then they just never got back to me. They never, they never gave me a response. They never gave me an explanation about this. I think Canadians deserve an explanation because why is it that a person who might not even have a real claim to be a refugee, just because someone says they're a refugee, they actually have to prove it. That The whole point of our system is that you have to provide evidence and prove to an immigration judge that you are, in fact, a refugee, that you do face a well-founded fear of persecution. And the people who are being given the health care, the gold-plated 20-year access health care cards, haven't proven that yet. So why, why is it that foreign, foreign nationals, people who are not permanent residents, not citizens, are getting a lot better health care than people who pay into the system? I think it's a big, big story, and I wish that the mainstream media would pay attention to these kind of things, because I think that Canadians really, really care about them. All right, moving on, let's talk conservative leadership race. So there's, I, be, I think there's basically a new front runner in the race now. The media were really trying to paint uh, Peter McKay as sort of the heir apparent of this party, the person who kind of deserves to be the title, and they really, really do paint him as a front runner, even though, to be completely frank, he's running a very lousy campaign. Like, any time he takes a stance on an issue, give him like 24 hours and he will reverse it. This has happened 
over and over and over again with Peter McKay. He now says that he regrets, uh, a big comment that Peter McKay made right after the election is that he said that Andrew Scheer's social values uh, hung around his neck like a stinking albatross during the campaign. Well, he now says that he regrets that comment. Um, he said that he was not happy with um, his own team for tweeting out uh, pictures, teasing, uh, a video teasing Justin Trudeau over uh, his yoga expenses. So he really quickly, you know, tweeted it out and then backtracked on it. And he backtracked on his position about the Israel embassy being in Jerusalem. You know, he, he, he basically said in an interview that he didn't think that he would keep it there or he didn't think he would move it there. And then after some pressure, he changed his mind and said he would. So Peter McKay is just all over the place. He doesn't know what he believes in. His team is saying one thing and he's sort of saying something else. And Aaron O'Toole really is emerging as a front runner. As a conservative, Aaron O'Toole is kind of hitting all the right notes. And he's really, really painting himself as a, you know, true blue, to quote Jason Kenney, a true blue conservative. And, and that's why he has now received the endorsement of Jason Kenney. I think at this point, you know, Jason Kenney, Stephen Harper, the two of them are probably the most influential conservatives uh, in Canada right now. Jason Kenney even more so because Stephen Harper is not in office right now, whereas Jason Kenney is the premier of Alberta. So he endorsed Aaron O'Toole last week. He publicly endorsed O'Toole's conservative leadership bid in an email to Conservative Party of Canada members. In the letter, Kenny embraced O'Toole as a true blue leader the party needs. I saw his passion for serving veterans, his relentless work ethic, and his common sense in solving difficult political challenges, Kenny wrote of O'Toole. That's the leadership we need. Aaron O'Toole respects the breadth of our big tent coalition. Every conservative would be welcome in a party led by Aaron. Now, this is just kind of interesting. I'll just make this point quickly. But Jason Kenney was publicly saying that he wanted Ronna Ambrose to be leader of the party. He was encouraging her to jump in and publicly talking about it. Then she kind of ruled it out. Next, all of a sudden, he was publicly calling on John Baird. John Baird should get in the race. John Baird should be leader. John Baird didn't get in the race. So, so, so we're kind of down to like, you know, two front runners, Aaron O'Toole, and Peter McKay and so Jason Kenny's like, okay, you know, now now that not, no one else is going to be running, now that all the other people that I was trying to call on and trying to get into the race, now that now that none of them are doing it, Aaron O'Toole is the true blue. He's he's the leader that we need. This is kind of like a consolation endorsement, but it will still give Aaron O'Toole a boost. I think a lot of people in the conservative party, the conservative movement, do look to Jason Kenney as sort of one of those visionary leaders. You know, there's uh, people in politics who are just politicians because that's the job that they want. They want to be prime minister or they want to be an MP because they think it'd be a fun job or it's just a job that they want. And then there's others who have a vision and have a message and, and really want to implement change. I think Jason Kenney is one of those sort of conviction politicians. And so if he's pointing to Aaron O'Toole and saying, you know, this is the guy that can lead our party and lead our movement, I think a lot of people are going to listen to that. So yeah, that gives Aaron O'Toole a big boost. You know, the first deadline has passed. So we have uh, the only people that are left in the race are people who have jumped past the first hurdle of raising a certain amount of money and collecting signatures. There will be another cutoff in a couple of weeks. And I think possible that it'll just be O'Toole and McKay at that point and in the head head to head between those two again the Jason Kenney endorsement will really help Aaron O'Toole all right one more story I want to talk to you about on the podcast you know math is just so hard economics is just so confusing sometimes and you know if, if you're on the left 
you don't really think about that kind of stuff. You don't think about math. You don't think about economics. You just, you just think about your feelings and, and how you feel about things. So this is an example that really, really, really shows how little people think. You know, the people that you watch on television, the pundits, the, the news anchors, the hosts that you watch on television, you kind of trust that they, you know, at, at least have given something a little bit of thought. You know, they've at least thought about something a little bit before they come to you on live television to tell you their opinion, to tell you why they're right about something. Well, this is just a reminder to all of us that some of the people on TV just don't think. They really don't think. They really don't think, they don't use their minds. So Brian Williams, a host of MSNBC, a pretty respected longtime journalist. I know he's had some issues, but a lot of people still respect him. He sat down with the New York Times editorial, mem editorial board member, Mara Gay, and they wanted to talk about Michael Bloomberg's campaign. Bloomberg was running for the Democrats to become the presidential nominee. He dropped out after Super Tuesday after a pretty dismal, dismal placing despite spending I think he spent $500 million on his campaign, which is a heck of a lot of money to not really do anything. I think the only delegates that he got were from American Samoa, and American Samoans don't even vote in the actual election. So it was a really, really dismal performance by Michael Bloomberg. It was because his debate performance was just so awful. Anyways, uh, these two, you know, brilliant, uh, you know, these two coastal elites um, with probably fancy university degrees uh, were talking about how Michael Bloomberg had misspent his money. So let's let's just play this clip for you. But you see it as a possibility if he wants to spend a billion bucks beating this guy, he could do it. Absolutely. Um, somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I've got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It When I read it, uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent 500 million on ads. U.S. population 327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American one million dollars and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. It does. It does suggest you know, what we're talking about here, which is there, there's too much money in politics. Um, it, it is incredible. You know, it's true. It's disturbing. No. Okay. These people, it, it just, it's so mind boggling. You know, okay. First of all, of course, you know, Michael Bloomberg spent $500 million. There's 300 million Americans. That's not a million dollars each. That's a dollar each. There's a dollar 50 each. Okay. That's just a really, really basic, basic math. If you have a thousand dollars for a thousand people, that's a dollar each, right? If you have a million, million dollars for a million people, that's a dollar each. So if you had $500 million for 330 million Americans, how on earth is that a million dollars each? It's just so mind-boggling that this got through on air. You kind of think of how many people would have had to see this tweet and just not even been able to compute the basic math. You know, there was a person who sent out the tweet in the first place who, who later doubled down on it, by the way. Um, this person, her, her name, you know, this this wasn't someone who was making a joke. This person's called Makita Revas. She contributes to the Washington Post. And so she tweeted out completely unironically and then later tweeted out, blah, blah, math, blah, blah. People are telling me my numbers are wrong, but the point still stands. He could have easily afforded to give everyone a million dollars and literally never notice. Again, no, that's not true. That's not true. Michael Bloomberg is worth about $50 billion. If he had given, if he wanted to give his entire net worth away distributed across all of Americans, it would be like $100 each.
much. It wouldn't be a million dollars. So no, the point doesn't still stand. So this person put out the tweet. Enough people retweeted it that when the host, Brian Williams, and this New York Times correspondent saw it, they didn't immediately see that it was debunked. They didn't know that it was wrong. They, they saw, enough people were tweeting it that they, that they thought it was right. They brought it to the show. You know, you have producers, you have editors, you have camera people. You, you have so many people that would be part of this show before it went to air. And no one flagged the point that they were off by a factor. You know, the, the decimal point was off by what? Five zeros. They were off by five zeros here. And just no one at over at MSNBC, no one at the New York Times editorial board had any clue. So again, this is an epic fail. On behalf of the left, it really kind of gives you an insight into how people on the left think. They really don't care about numbers. They don't care about math. This is why no one on the Democrat side, their platforms don't come anywhere near adding up. This is how Bernie Sanders can get away with a proposal to spend more money in his more money in his proposal than the entire economy in the United States. I think his his someone tallied up all his plans and it worked out to about forty trillion dollars over a decade. Uh, by comparison, the U.S. GDP, the total amount of money in the entire economy, is about twenty trillion dollars. So you know, Democrats, people on the left, have no care about about how much money they spend. Numbers don't really matter to them, doesn't really add up. You could say the exact same thing about the Trudeau liberals here in Canada, hence why Justin Trudeau said that budgets were going to balance themselves. And he said that he was gonna have $10 billion deficits, which we know they've spiraled out of control over the last five years. So never trust anyone on the left when they're talking about numbers because they just don't know how to do math. All right, I'm gonna leave it at that. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.